0: Hi, I'm Stathis, your host. Before we jump in this episode, let me introduce DevRelX. DevRelX is a hub for developer marketing and DevRel professionals. Stay home while DevRelX brings you rich content to boost your DevRel game. Access developer population insights, news, job openings, and more. Discover how to empower developers and grow communities at devrelx.com. Today's episode will start with a quote from our guest.
1: So the thing that you have to do in developer relations to build up that trust over time you know, before is, is be helpful. And so I think public speaking and sharing stories about how other people have solved problems is a super helpful way to get yourself in front of developers uh, and get yourself kind of associated with this positive thing.
0: Hello, welcome to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, our slash data podcast devoted to developer marketing and relations. I'm Stathis, your host. When we first decided that I will be taking over the hosting of this podcast, I'm not going to lie, I felt a rush of stage right all over. As more guests joined me in the podcast to discuss a subject I really love, it became a lot easier, at least to the point that I can uh, joke around it at the beginning of an episode. Still, hosting a podcast is less a challenge than speaking in front of a crowd at a tech conference, for example. How could someone manage that? Thankfully, our guest today, Carl Hughes, will walk us through the process. Carl is the CTO of The Great Network and runs the CFPland.com. Carl, welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, Stathis. It's good to be here.
0: We're happy to have you. Will you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so uh, my name is Carl, as you 've said, I am a software engineer, and now I play a bit of software engineer and a bit of manager as a as the chief technology officer at a startup based in Chicago. Um, I got into public speaking a couple of years ago uh, at tech conferences. I guess you know to sort of give you a little backstory, I had myself personally been doing some form of public speaking or performance ever since uh, well, at least high school and maybe even further back. Uh, I, I was in a band in college, and so we played open mic nights and little shows on campus. I, I did a theater production uh, when I was in college as well, and so I got a lot of experience being on stage in front of people. Uh, and I, I think it took me a long time before I got the, the sort of um, the courage up to actually go try to speak at a tech conference. And I think you, you alluded to this, that getting on stage is intimidating, and for me, it was as well. And those first times, even though I knew I could speak in public, um, it was still really challenging to to get in front of a technical audience and, and sort of present something that that I knew you know, lots of people in the room probably knew as well or better than me. So uh, anyway, for the last few years, I've been the chief technology officer at the Grade Network. And um, a couple years ago, I decided I would sort of start getting into public speaking at conferences. And... That sort of led me into CFP land, which we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, a little bit. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where i met today in my career.
0: Uh, what kind of music did you play with the bands? <laughs> uh,
1: you know, <laughs> I'm trying to remember. It was a lot of cover songs, and then we would write a few original ones. I would say it was something like um, kind of a uh, rock, country, blues uh, mix of things. I'm from Tennessee. And uh, the blues is very big. I actually grew up in Memphis. Yeah, and
0: it's very big there. <laughs> no, yeah. Big, uh, <laughs> big production of blues songs there.
1: Exactly. So, uh, you know, my, my roommate in college and I were, were big fans of a lot of the, the classic blues and the 70s sort of era of blues, like, you know, Seaver Avon type guys. And then, we got to be really big fans of kind of a modern wave of blues stuff with like uh, the white stripes and Jack White's different projects. And, um, anyway, so we were big music nerds, and um, it was it was really fun. Actually, he's still in a band, and they actually uh, they they play at different um, places professionally. Like he's stuck stuck with it, and I went a totally different direction. <laughs> but that's life.
0: Yeah, I'm sure tech conferences uh, beat blues bars, <laughs> at least in this case. Totally depends.
1: Um, (laughs)
0: What was the driving force or um, a role model, if it was, that led you from bars playing blues to (laughs) working as a CTO and running CFP Land?
1: Yeah, well, I I think um, I've always been a very practical person. So while I, I love doing the creative, I love having creative pursuits and hobbies uh, I always have known that I wanted to be an engineer or somebody in a, a pretty technical uh, role. I love building things. And so uh, a couple of early role models and sort of experiences led me to that. One was uh, my, uh, my mom's family has a lot of engineers. Her dad was an engineer at, at uh, GM for many years. And so I kind of knew a little bit about the profession. I remember, um, Talking to my uncles, who were very hands on technical mechanical type guys, uh, and they they were sort of always showing me things. My dad also was a very kind of handy guy building stuff, and so I loved building things from a young age and um, as I started to learn computers in high school and then in college, I realized that, that was a really fun way to build things because it was so fast and you could you could just within minutes you could build something and then you could see it run and it, there was no cost to it it was just it took your time and Having that, that experience was probably the, the, the shaping reason. Now, as far as individual role models, there's family members. I, I have also had some great career role models that have kind of led me to this path of working with startups and um, being a, you know, sort of the, the lead at a, a small company like this. Um, I, I know specifically I had a boss's name was Stephen McGuire, uh, at the last startup I worked with, and he was a great uh, tech and product guy, still is, um, we don't work together anymore. Um, And he, for example, kind of gave me a lot of inspiration when it came to being technical, but also having the people skills that you need to manage a team and inspire other people to work. Because at the end of the day, that ends up being one of the more important parts of the job uh, on a daily basis than just being the best at writing code.
0: And uh, how did then uh, CFP Land came to be?
1: Yeah. So when I started speaking, I realized one of the challenges that anyone who wants to speak at tech conferences has is you have to find CFPs, which that can stand for calls for papers or calls for proposals. Some conferences will call call for speakers. So uh, either way, whatever you call it, you've got to find these things. And they're, they're on a bunch of different websites. And uh, I started collecting my own in a big spreadsheet. And then I started realizing that there were lots of other people speaking that wanted they kept asking for access to my spreadsheet. So I started off by just giving everybody, you know, a shared link on my spreadsheet. And then eventually I started sending a newsletter and eventually that newsletter kind of picked up steam and I started um, CFP land as a website so you could actually sign up and start getting every week uh, a list of the open CFPs in your inbox. And for me that, um, you know, there's lots of ways to do this. I could go to a website and check every week, I could use my spreadsheet. But for me, the easiest thing was every week, I knew I wanted to apply to a few conferences. So just having this thing come to my inbox and force me, okay, here's the open ones, go pick some to apply to. That was really helpful. And I think that resonated with a lot of other speakers as well, who maybe just want to find two or three CFPs to apply for every week and just keep doing that and repeating. And so that's how it's uh, kind of come about. Uh, Since then, I've done some, I've, I've been running it for about a year and a half. So I've kind of written a lot of blog posts, I've done a bunch of interviews with speakers, I wrote a big uh, guide to public speaking that kind of synthesized a lot of the the things that the the 35 speakers that I interviewed um kind of talked about and sort of their advice uh and then I've also uh just last summer I opened up kind of a pro plan that uh it's like a pro membership that that a few people sign up for and it basically just helps support the project and you also get access to some CFP tracking tools and things like that. So Anyway, it's, uh, it's been a really fun little side project to work on. Fortunately, it doesn't take up too much of my time at this point, but um, I'm always looking for ways to improve it, so love getting feedback on it.
0: Yeah, that's great. And um, I really love what you said uh, before you know, when I asked you about the role models that um, the fa- your family was uh, engineers and uh, they liked building stuff. It's something that uh, led you afterwards to want to become an engineer yourself. What is a habit, let's say, that you picked up in your childhood and you still carry to work, to, to your work life today.
1: Yeah, <laughs> one thing stands out specifically. I was, I was homeschooled until I was in fifth grade, which um, when you're homeschooled, it, in, uh, that tends to mean like you, you sort of do some lessons and then you have a lot more free time at home than a lot of kids do. Um, and uh, in my free time, I played with Legos constantly. And <laughs> I remember just distinctly like, the building the stuff and tinkering with it and seeing how different pieces fit together. And I think that that, those many hours of playing with Legos and uh, building things and then tearing them down and just trying different combinations of pieces, I still feel myself doing that all the time. And it's one of the reasons that I really enjoy being a software engineer is that we're constantly building things, tearing things down, trying to you know reverse engineer our own work or someone else's work, and it's a it's just a ton of fun. I mean, I can't imagine a profession that would be more rewarding if you're the kind of person who likes to build things.
0: Yeah, I love how you you started from Legos and. Um... In fact, what really changes is the tools and what you can do yeah. with them now. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're still building stuff. Some stuff are uh, really colorful too. So, yeah. yeah. It's a good place. And, and every, it's, it's a good habit <laughs> to, to still keep Yeah.
1: Exactly. And every now and then I get to pull out my old Legos. I still have a few of them and <laughs> I, I just had a, a son. He's only five months old, but I look forward to playing with him with those too. So it, those will always be there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's definitely something to, to look up to, to or at least to wait for it to happen. So you, you're an engineer. Uh, do you think you need to be an engineer to be good at DEREL? Uh
1: I do not think you do. Um, I, I think it's interesting. I am an engineer, but I'm also kind of a, a weird mix of things. So I studied mechanical engineering in college because I thought I wanted to be more in those physical like engineering roles. And then I realized I liked the software much more, and so I sort of I basically took a little bit of the knowledge they gave me in college and then taught myself a ton about web development. So I don't have a traditional computer science background. I don't have um, any sort of degree that would make me <laughs> officially qualified for the kind of roles that I've had for the last eight years. But I think that's, that sort of speaks to our industry in general. The technology industry has been very open to people who have non-traditional backgrounds. And I think that holds true in developer relations because I've met and seen a wide range of people in developer relations and developer marketing who are from backgrounds as is wide ranging as, you know, software engineering to PR and marketing to things that are just totally out there, whether, you know, maybe they worked at bars and then taught themselves enough code and uh, you know, marketing skills to kind of get out there and, and start getting in front of people. It's just having, it's kind of knowing what your strengths are to me, that seems like the real power or the real like, uh, the real skill. So if you know your strengths are not in the technical things, but you're willing to learn and speak to people who do know that, then there's no, prob- no reason you can't get into a field and start learning and, and picking up enough to be a valuable member of the community.
0: Yeah, that's definitely good news to, to all the people and um, our listeners that are not developers, but really like to get into developer relations. Knowing your strength and uh, uh, being curious is uh, one thing that has come up quite a lot, Absolutely. especially yeah. on that side. So and willingness to learn I'd say yeah Uh, you you said earlier that you every week I think it was uh, you like to apply for a call for paper um or a proposal to speak somewhere uh why is it so important in developer relations to speak at
1: conferences yeah I I think there's there's a lot of reasons that people get into speaking and I it kind of depends um Obviously, if you're in developer relations, I think something like eighty five or ninety percent of people in developer relations, a part of their job is speaking at, at events, whether that's meetups or conferences or company events or some you know combination of all those um, so a, a, as a job, developer relations or developer advocacy, all these these sort of job- job titles are going to have speaking as a core part of what they do. And so at the very base level, it's important because it's probably going to be part of your job expectation. But then beyond that, and, and I think this is maybe speaks more broadly to anyone in engineering that wants to speak. There's a lot of really good reasons that you you may want to speak at conferences. It might be to help other people. And honestly, this is one of the things I'm noticing a lot about developer marketing as an industry is that it has become much more help driven rather than Uh, sales driven. Uh, Somebody, I was just talking to someone who's in developer relations and they made a really good point. They said, you know, developers are are smart, analytical uh, thinking people that don't want to be sold to. They don't want to get on a sales call until they know they want to buy the product. And they're just going to go on and like ask a few key questions about their specific use case, maybe make sure those are are covered and then they're going to buy so by the time that a developer gets on a sales call, they are almost 100% committed in their mind. So the thing that you have to do in developer relations to build up that trust over time you know, before is, is be helpful. And so I think public speaking and sharing stories about how other people have solved problems is a super helpful way to get yourself in front of developers uh, and get yourself kind of associated with this positive thing. And a lot of the, uh, the speakers I interviewed mentioned that that's one of their most compelling reasons for getting on stage is just to help people. And ultimately, that does come back around when developers are working with them later. There's also a really good case for just getting to the events allows you to meet people in the community that are maybe normally not that active in the places that you're hanging out. So for example, if you do all your interactive uh, your interactions with people in, in your developer community, Online only, you're only going to Reddit and Stack Overflow and those kind of places. You're missing a huge portion of the community that just doesn't use those tools. And I think we kind of forget because it seems like we're in this echo chamber, but like, and we're all online and we're all super connected, but like, we forget that a lot of developers just don't use Twitter. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with that, right? You can have a perfectly great career without ever being on there. And so when you don't go to events and like meet people in person, you miss this subset of people that maybe aren't as involved in those. uh, the online forums where you're seeing them there are other reasons to speak too i mean i there's a lot of speakers who will admit that that some of the reason they do it is just to build their own professional um brand and they're they're sort of get to be known for a certain um, a certain technology that they're good at speaking about some people do it because they just like traveling and to be honest it's actually a pretty fun way to get to go travel places because in a lot of cases um the, the conference may cover or help cover your travel costs. And so you can you know go speak and then spend a couple of days hanging out. And I've gotten to see some great places because of the, the conferences I've talked at. It, it's a good way also to um, kind of have yourself out there to find a job. So um, personally, I haven't done this because I haven't looked for a job since I've been speaking. But if I were, I know that being on stage is a, a sort of great way to to present yourself as a professional who's knowledgeable about a certain topic. And um, it looks good on a resume from everything I've talked to with other people. So those are some of the reasons. I mean, there's a, a number, you know, everybody's got their own things that come down to it uh, uh, their own reasons for, for wanting to speak. Uh, and again, with developer relations, it's part of your job, but I think there's a lot more to it uh, than that. And I think most of the developer relations people I talk to say that they would probably be doing some speaking, even if it weren't part of their job.
0: Yes, I think what you're saying is definitely true. When I first you know, started working with and trying to understand how developer marketing and relations work, I, I saw immediately how often speaking at conferences came up. I came from a traditional marketing background. So you know, com- talking to conferences for me was always like a good driver for awareness. You know, in a group of people that uh, share the, in the same industry, let's say, or uh, share a lot of things. With you, but what I really, really liked, and uh, I hadn't seen it anywhere else, is that speaking at conferences is just not just saying about what you do, what your company does, what are your tools. It's also about, as you said, helping developers, and um, there's this is a big driver I think, in developer marketing. You know, trying to to help developers uh, with use cases or uh, success stories, if you want, to not also know your tools, but know how to use them so they can be better and they can produce better things. So to, to summarize, because um, I, I wanted to, to touch this point, you know, how speaking at conferences is, uh, is beneficial. It's about the first of the things you use the stage to help developers um, solve issues or uh, become better. You get to meet the community because uh, we, and uh, in, I include myself in that, as you said, we take for granted that people use Reddit or Twitter or all, all other kinds of um, social media or. Places to meet, but not everyone does, and uh, so you're missing out on uh, a big share of the community when when you don't meet them in person. Plus, as you said, the traveling. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think the other thing too that a lot of speakers I've talked to mention is just getting to go to conferences is hugely beneficial, even if you're not like when you're speaking, it's great because you can get up there and like you come from a place of authority. But just going, even as an attendee, gives you this insight into the community that you're you're there for. So for example, uh, I've been involved in the the PHP community for many years. And every time I get to go to a conference in that, that space, it's like, I get to learn about where the the language is heading and where the frameworks are going and what kind of things people are are building with it and where some of the cutting edge stuff is too. And that helps a lot with just, it's sort of a form of market research. And it's really hard to substitute, uh, just reading blog posts, uh, for, for actually getting to talk to people on the ground who go to these conferences.
0: Yes, I definitely agree on that. And um, okay, we've uh, we've discussed the benefits and it's uh, pretty clear that you you should uh, attend or speak (laughs) even better at conferences. How should you choose which CFP to apply to?
1: Yeah, Um, and uh, this is kind of an interesting one too, because this this depends a lot on your preferences and your priorities. So uh, in interviewing, about oh, these 35 or so speakers and then talking to many others, I've heard uh, a few different a few different things come up. So one thing that, that has come up increasingly um, frequently has been like, does the conference actually put forth the effort around diversity and inclusion? And do they have a code of conduct? And um, are they taking care of speakers, but also attendees? And is it a, you know, A good place to be and associate our brand with. And I think this is especially important right now in developer relations because you have to think like, if we are going to associate our company and our brand with this conference, we want to make sure it's not a conference where there might be some major Whatever community snafu of some type, and and that could be all sorts of things from like a major code of conduct violation by an organizer or um, a, another speaker or uh, something like that that's not handled correctly. And so, in knowing that the conference is going to take care of those sorts of issues, you're sort of de-risking yourself, but you're also making sure you're aligned with the right kinds of events, which I think is important. Uh, beyond that, though, there's there's some practical things that are that are probably more obvious, like. The conference is going to have um, a specific. Every conference has its own specific topic area of focus. And if you, as a speaker, are say trying to, uh, you you want to speak about Ruby or to a Ruby audience, you don't want to go to a Python conference. Just or I mean that's just not the right audience, right? So sometimes it's really obvious like that. Sometimes it's a little more subtle. If you check out a CFP's uh, sort of this conference's CFP page, a lot of times they'll tell you what their areas of focus are. So for example, I've noticed a lot of conferences now, even if they are a language specific conference they may also focus further on like cloud computing or testing or something like that and so in that case you sort of want to pick the cfps that are right for your talks location is a big one that also is a pretty practical matter but but something to think about Um, especially if the conference is not going to be paying for your travel or airfare or you know your company has a limited budget for that kind of thing you want to think about um how Far, is it worth traveling for this sort of thing? And this has been something that comes up with a lot of developer relations people is trying to figure out who's the best person to speak based partly on location, especially as we have more distributed teams these days. And then there's also kind of the reputation of the conference itself. So um, it, there are bigger, more, um, I guess like higher quality conferences that have been around a long time. And then there are really small uh, kind of community run conferences that feel a little more like a meetup. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those types of events. I think it's just a matter of matching up where, you know, what kind of audience you're trying to reach and how you're trying to present yourself and all that stuff. So it, it's, a uh, that, that sort of, again, that just kind of takes some learning about the space. It takes kind of going to more events, it takes talking to the organizers sometimes or talking to other speakers. One thing I found really helpful as well as a, I'm a pretty new speaker, but I, um, I have a, a And somebody invited me to a speaker Slack group, and uh, from there I've been able to kind of ask other speakers about certain conferences, like, hey, is this a good conference? Does anybody have a good or bad experience here? And I think there are Slack groups like that for developer relations professionals specifically, where you can go ask, you know, is this a good conference, a good event to be in? And that kind of um, community-driven feedback is really important, too, to take into account when you're thinking about which CFPs we want to speak at.
0: Yeah, that's great. That's true. You, as you said, need To go to a conference where you know it's close to your focus, and this also means that you have uh, something to contribute to. Code of conduct obviously is key because mm-hmm. um, we're going to, to a place to get together and um, work to make something better, not the other way around. Absolutely, and uh, yeah, location too is, uh, is also key, especially as you said before for traveling. You want to see new places <laughs> if that works. <laughs> so, if this is a conference and then your focus and it's in a nice place, yeah. That's definitely one to check. Plus, obviously, from your peers, people who've been there. So you you take all these things into consideration. You find a CFP, let's say, you you really like and you apply there. What are some tips that will increase your chances to get accepted there to speak at the conference?
1: Yeah, what I found really interesting about (laughs) CFPs and applying is that there's sort of, to be a conference speaker, you have to have two distinct skill sets. Skill set one is speaking at the conference, which obviously that, that makes sense, right? You have to get on stage. you have to be at least okay with with uh, public speaking and building a PowerPoint and all that stuff. The other skill set that gets kind of I think people don't realize until they start applying for conferences is you have to be good at writing proposals or abstracts. Uh, and so submitting your CFB means um, you know writing some some form of abstract or proposal that basically just says what your talk's going to be about and all that. And there's, it, it can actually be pretty hard to do because you're kind of trying to match what you're talking about with what the conference's focus and goals are. And it's interesting in, in developer relations, you kind of get this other vector in, into the mix where it's like, we also need the talk to be somewhat on brand for the company in some way uh, that we're promoting. And, you know, some, some DevRel teams are have a mandate to be a little more directly related. It's like they'll only talk about things that are kind of, Use their company's tool chain, whereas maybe other um, other Devrel teams are a little more open-ended in what they pick from what I've heard talking to people in the industry it, it sort of varies quite a bit so um, either way you've got to submit a, a, an abstract and it's got to be like good fit for the conference um, it's got to be something that you're actually excited to talk about and knowledgeable in talking about um, it's got to be something that is somewhat unique uh, at least um, to that conference itself or to that audience itself. Uh, this is kind of tricky, and I think the uniqueness thing maybe gets a little more, um, don't worry about it too much, because in a way that every conference is trying to cover a certain set of, of topics, and they may need somebody to speak on these things, even if they are pretty standard and they've been around a long time, it's still good because a lot of audience members will still wanna hear about them. Uh, other things that you can do to kind of up your chances are really be like, be very specific in what your talk is going to deliver to the audience and what uh, the audience is, what the audience will hopefully learn from it. And uh, don't try to like, um, don't be very vague about like, Oh, this is going to be a talk about building front ends in react, for example, that that just feels very vague. I don't understand why that's unique. And I don't understand why that talk would be compelling over another one uh, a much more interesting talk would be maybe focusing on like how a certain team used react to turn their front you know make their front end go from this problem to this solution or something like that and m- my example is a little vague but you get the idea i think use case uh, type talks are really uh, a lot more compelling uh, than kind of the abstract introduction to x technology type talks
0: yeah yeah that's definitely true so uh the, the abstract that uh, you will end up submitting is uh, like a, a preview, let's say, of mm-hmm. your, uh, of your uh, talk there. I guess it should be a little bit of a teaser too. So, of course, you need to be knowledgeable, as you said. Uh, you need to know the, sp- the subject you'll be talking about. Uh, you need to be specific. not mm-hmm. um, we've, we've all been uh, at conferences where uh, one speaker comes up at some point and uh, his pitch itself, not only the abstract, I guess, but also the street was uh, you know, so vague, so generic, that you, you didn't feel you, you, got re- you really got something out of it. And uh, the unique factor, uh, I think this should be true for everyone, because you, you want to put your, um, your personality, maybe if you want, or mm-hmm. the, the characteristic that makes you distinct, that you, you can offer something that they have not heard before. So you write the abstract, it has all the ingredients right, you get your email confirming you uh, will be speaking at the conference. Now what? How do you (laughs) prepare your presentation?
1: Yeah, so it's interesting that a lot of speakers don't actually have a presentation prepared when they get that talk accepted for the first time. That was something I didn't realize as a new speaker as well. So just, you know, don't... um, don't worry about it too much if you are submitting a talk idea that you don't have a full, you know, fully prepared uh, presentation on. But once you do get accepted, now it's time. It's kind of like the <laughs> the deadline is set, and you've got to have something by the time of that conference, uh, or, or else you look really bad. So, um, in a way, that's a nice little forcing function. It kind of makes you have to build the presentation. Um, there's a there's a lot of tips around like writing presentations and uh, picking the the tools uh, that you can use, I think some of the big things that that I would pass on are to try to make your your whole presentation a bit of a story with a good arc uh, there's this um, idea in storytelling called the hero's journey and if you've been in, um, if you 've been in creative writing classes at any point in time you 've probably seen this it's like a, a super common way to tell a story and that you can kind of apply that sort of thing to your presentation in a way to, to kind of start things off with a, hey, we were stuck with this problem. We found some kind of solution. Here's how we solved it. Here's the happy case we ended with. It's a pretty basic arc, but it really helps to have the, the audience will appreciate having something that tells a, a logical and like uh, relatable story, and they can kind of apply their own situation to it. Another thing to think about is using your slides as a like use your slides to illustrate points, but not to just bullet point every single thing. I mean, I've been to a lot of conferences in the last few years and a ton of speakers still do this. They just basically put their bullet points on a slide and then go through and read their bullet points on every single slide. And it is painful to watch because you know, it's, I feel like I could read these slides myself and get the exact same thing that the speaker is talking about. So try to avoid that if at all possible. There, there's uh, a bunch of other tips in the the guide that I wrote that I kind of have gathered from, from speakers, but um, those are kind of the big ones that I see as like maybe the the worst offenders uh, are just the best things you can do to, to, to get ready. And then the other thing that I always tell people and people always tell me both is just practice a ton. And if you can give the talk at either like a company lunch and learn a couple times maybe, or a local meetup group, or if you have to, to, you know, your significant other at home or your friends at home or something. And I usually try to practice talks 10 to 20 times before I ever get on a conference stage. And so that sounds excessive. I think a lot of speakers don't do quite that much. Maybe it's just, I'm a little insecure about it still, but I think that the more you have a good idea about how you're going to give this talk and you know the information like the back of your hand, the the more polished you'll come off without sounding like you're reading from a script. And that's sort of what you're going for there.
0: Yeah, totally agree with that. And um, as you said, we've all been there, bullet points, and uh, the speaker (laughs) just, yeah, just read them. Um, It's exactly as you said. I I just could have gotten the slides and um, would have exactly the same effect. So you prepared the presentation, you've gone through the hero's journey, uh, hero being yourself in this case. So you arrive at the event, how do you prepare uh, or, you know, spend the time before you get on the stage and, which is key here and I really want to hear it too, so how do you manage the, straight, the stage fright?
1: Yeah, um, so the biggest thing you can do I think to manage stage right is practice and that's why I mentioned it in the previous point but I'll mention it again because to me it's still it feels like the thing that uh, separates the best speakers from the ones who are kind of average and I'm, I'm still learning to do this myself and so I'm very much in the, the learner seat here too but the more you practice the more comfortable you're going to be on a real stage in front of real people and the more you can practice in a realistic environment the better you're going to be so for example um, talking at a meetup is much better than just talking at you know in to yourself in the mirror, giving the talk to yourself in the mirror, because these are real people out in the audience. You're going to get to see what real faces look like when they sort of pay attention, when they don't, you're going to have a better sense of the the energy level and things like that. So that's sort of before leading up to the conference, that's the best thing you can do to manage your stage fright, I think. Once you actually get to the event and you're, you're sort of trying to figure out like, okay, what do I do here? Um first of all, spend some time reading over the conferences materials that they give you as a speaker. A lot of times conferences will send you a speaker packet or at least an email or two that has information for the speakers. Figure out like which talks you want to go to, which ones you want to, um, you really want to meet the spe- the other speakers maybe, because that's also a really helpful reason to go to conferences. is just getting to meet these other speakers. Um, and then as you kind of get ready to go on stage, uh, a lot of speakers go into this like Prep mode, and this was this is a question I always ask speakers as I'm interviewing them. It's like, what do you do to prepare in those last open, you know, last few minutes up to your talk? And I love the answers. There's, you know, people do all sorts of wild stuff. So Alex uh, Lakatos, I think uh, he's a developer. He's in developer advocacy, um, and he, he mentioned he always goes and finds a quiet spot or goes into the bathroom and he starts just imagining that he won something. He's pounding. On his chest, he's raising his fists in the air. He's, he's smiling. He's yelling, <laughs> and the, I, I love I love that image in my head. Uh, and I've never met Alex in person, but I I hope someday to meet him because I just had, I I immediately have this image of what it's going to look like when he's doing his fist pumps and getting ready. <laughs> yeah, but, that's definitely one way to get your pump <laughs> Exactly. I mean, but what Alex is saying it holds true for anybody. Is that you want to kind of get yourself in a mental state to be ready to speak and to be re- like. Be excited about it. Be happy. Be positive. And um, whatever you have to do to get there. For me personally, I always try to work out in the morning. I'm not a fitness nut or anything, but like I, I love to, um, to at least get like a, a short run in or like a, a trip to the gym or whatever I can, maybe even just a long walk, kind of get the blood flowing early in the day and kind of get my brain moving a bit. I also like to have some conversations leading up to my talk. So if I sit quietly, I feel like I. I Go into introvert mode, and so start going around in between talks and talking to five or six other people, or calling a family member or something that helps me get into conversation mode. It's like I feel like a lot of developers have this, where we are truly more introverted, and that's our default state. But we can get ourselves into this extroverted mode if we work hard at it. And So I try to get myself into that mode, pretend like I'm that. Um, kind of other there's other logistical things too. I mean. You want to have tried your slides before you get on stage, so hopefully there's no surprise when you plug in your computer and it's like if it doesn't work, that's a big deal. Um, you want to kind of know what your presentation is going to be like if you don't have internet access for some strange reason, because you know, in the, there's always something bad will go wrong. So there's lots of stuff like that. Um, anyway, I, I think you what you want to do though is develop a routine that you can get yourself into that gets you into the right mindset to speak, whether that's pumping yourself up or it's being in a quiet room, alone, you need that to, to get yourself ready. Or you need to listen to music, um, or you need to go have some conversations. Figure out what works for you, and just make that a routine.
0: Yeah, and then take a deep breath and uh, deliver the speech you've been uh, preparing for so long.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, and it's uh, one thing uh, you yeah. can. One thing I was going to add to that is, as you start to do that, one thing I found really helpful is to basically really practice and refine my opening and closing lines. Because a lot of the times that first sentence is the hardest thing to get out. And I don't know why this is, but it's like, you, you get on stage, there's bright lights on you. There's, you know, it's an unfamiliar environment. You only know a couple of people in the crowd and it's easy to just go blank. So try to really know that first line. So it at least gets your momentum going. And then hopefully that gets you over the hill and you kind of go into flow mode. That's no problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great deal. So let's say you made all this. Deliver the presentation, you get the applause. What do you do afterwards? What should you do at least?
1: Yeah, I, well, there's a, <laughs> there's a couple different, um, I don't know, schools of thought or things that people think about. Uh, one, and this is kind of as you're closing your presentation, you, you should know whether you're going to give time for questions or not. So this is kind of a debated topic uh, because it depends on the speaker. It depends on the conferences. I've been to conferences where they say, don't leave time for questions just go to the hallway and you know, tell people to meet them out there. I've met speakers who don't leave time for questions because intentionally because it's just distracting and sometimes the audience members ask questions that throw other people off and maybe it's um, also can be like uh, kind of putting the speaker on the spot, which maybe they're not ready to do. Um, so decide where you stand on that. Um, once you've presented, you've done your questions or maybe you, you go answer questions off afterwards, Couple things that I like to think about after I presented. I always try to thank the organizers of the event because organizers of events work really hard, and it is a generally pretty thankless job. In that, if if it all goes well, you, they don't hear anything. If things happen wrong, it's a, it's a big deal, and it looks really they bad.
0: They hear everything.
1: They hear everything exactly. <laughs> and so, I always try to like leave them with a decent pressure of me as a person like uh you know so i I think think about that they work really hard and they they usually don't make a ton of money off of these things so it's it's nice of them to do it and give you the platform um and then follow up with uh people you have conversations with i always find two or three people after my talks who have specific questions they want to dig deeper on or maybe they want to connect on linkedin or or via email and um that's always really fun because I've, I've met a couple of people at conferences who I still stay in touch with on a regular basis and we still get to, you know, pass our ideas and thoughts and things around when we're in the same city. We'll get to meet up for coffee or whatever. Um, so keep in touch with those connections that you make there.
0: Yes, that's true. Definitely do that. Uh, because, uh, for instance, I have an example for you. I've been one of those connections and um, haven't seen such great speeches, you know, I, I wanted people to, to come join us on the podcast. So mm. a couple of episodes, um, yeah. over the past episodes, I've been uh, from people that I saw speaking and really wanted to, to have what they said uh, shared with our listeners in the podcast. Thank you for joining us, Carl. Uh, I'm sure our listeners will follow the tips we shared today. And uh, also I will add a link to your guide uh, so everyone you know, can, can read more. Carl has a, a very big guide that I really urge you to, to go through because it, it might be about uh, public speaking, but there's also some great tips uh, you, sh- you could follow in your uh, everyday work life there. So uh, I'll add the link there. But if people want more, how can they reach you?
1: Yeah. So I'm on Twitter personally at Carl L. Hughes and it's Carl with a K. So, um, you probably just follow the link here. And then, uh, CFP land is the website I run. It's also got a Twitter account. If you want to, you know, if you're looking for CFPs on a regular basis, hopefully it helps you out. And it's, I mean, there's a ton of free stuff on there, including that guide and the weekly emails and the list of CFPs. So, um, you don't, you know, no need to worry about, uh, paying and anything like that. Um, but yeah, and reach out to me via those methods anytime. I always love to hear from people, feedback about, uh, public speaking and calls for proposals and conferences—it's it's always a lot of fun. And uh, thanks again for having me on.
0: It's been great, uh, Carl. Thank you for joining us. Yeah. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening to Under the Hood of Developer Marketing, a podcast from Slash Data. If you want to listen to other episodes, you can subscribe at developermarketingpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at slashdatahq for regular updates. Thank you. <laughs>